I'm sorry. There was some cue that, I, that we're about done. Yeah. Uh, what was that cue? It's all right. We'll end it there. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just not respond to that. Just yeah. uh, let yeah. you go from there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Okay. So if you're ready, we'll, we'll go quiet for a second. I'll read the intro script and, uh, and away we go. All right. Thank okay. you. Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the tea leaves? <laughs> so I have to start over. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Okay, once in a while, I also have to start over. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I just did like a two-hour webinar, so I'm my um, I'm kind of cooked uh, myself. Oh. <laughs> so I've got like cotton mouth here. Okay, here we go. We're gonna go silent, and I'm gonna try this again. Okay, is it Risman or Reisman? Risman. Okay, that's what I thought. I just thought I checked that out. All right. Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me, with me today is Jeffrey Rissman uh, from Energy Innovation, and we're going to talk about um, an article um, that I saw in Forbes, I think it was Forbes magazine or on the Forbes website, about, um, I think the title was something like, we only need uh, four transport solutions, which immediately caught my eye. Um, for those of you who read the blog, I actually uh, featured it on the blog. Um, and then I reached out to Jeffrey to see if he uh, would want to talk to me about some of the work that actually went into uh, producing um, that analysis and subsequently the article. So uh, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tammy. Happy to be here. Oh, good to have you. So let me tell you a little bit about Jeffrey before we get started. Uh, Jeffrey is Energy Innovations Head of Modeling and, and also an energy policy expert for the firm. He leads modest modeling efforts modeling efforts for the firm's energy policy solutions focus area to determine what policies most effectively help meet climate and energy goals. Uh, Jeff led the development of the energy policy simulator by which this um, article was actually based on and what we're going to talk about. Um, and the energy policy simulator is a computer model quantifying costs and emissions impacts of various policy combinations. His previous work at the firm for, focused on clean tech R&D. He holds holds an MS in Environmental Sciences and Engineering and a Master's in City and Regional Planning from UNC Chapel Hill and a BA in International Relations with Honors from Stanford University. Okay, Jeff, again, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Thanks. Okay. Happy to chat with you today. Yeah. So um, before, as, as we sort of get into it, can you talk a little bit um, about um, energy innovations, um, what it, energy innovation, what it does, and your role within the organization? Sure. So energy innovation is an NGO, a non-governmental organization. And our goal is to provide high-quality, objective, nonpartisan information to uh, policymakers and regulators about how they can best achieve uh, a transition to a clean energy future, 
uh, decarbonize the economy um, sector by sector and, and what policies will do that and also achieve uh, ancillary goals uh, such as financial savings and prosperity, uh, air quality improvements, um, and so forth. So we're, um, we're supported by uh, donors and um, give our advice to policymakers not just in the U.S. but around the world. So um, can you talk about, so the, the model that I mentioned when I was um, introducing you all to the, introducing you to the audience, um, the energy policy simulator, can you talk about, um, you, can you give some background about that, how it was created, um, what it does, and then, you know, with respect to transport, you know, what kind of assumptions have, have gone on to, gone into the model? So maybe give us a sense of the process. Sure. So the simulator was initially created um, following a request from the um, government of China. So they were looking at um, what policies they could use to help, um, help stop their growth of emissions and uh, to in what they could integrate into their 13th five-year plan. China plans its, its energy and environmental policies as well as its economic policies in these five-year cycles called five-year plans. Um, and so um, our CEO has a relationship with one of the ministers there, and he reached out to our CEO and asked if there was a good way we could provide input, uh, input on quantitatively understanding the impacts of different policies and sort of rank ordering them in, in priority so that they would know which to focus on given limited time and limited money and, and attention and political capital. Um, so we reviewed, or I reviewed, uh, more than 60 different uh, models, computer models that were out there, trying to find one that would meet the needs of this project. Uh, some of those needs were that it had to handle both the energy side and the financial side, had to be able to do all the cost and savings calculations. Some of the energy system models don't have a finance side. Another requirement is that it had to be open source because the government of China would never trust any model that they couldn't look inside and see every bit of the workings. So that knocked out a whole slew of models that were proprietary uh, or, or hidden called black box type models, um, and so on. And, and in the end, we realized that there weren't any models out there that could meet uh, the requirements we needed for this project. Another big one is that policies uh, had to be able to easily model a wide variety of policy types. So we set about building one ourselves. Um, the process took uh, a couple of years, but we developed this tool, the Energy Policy Simulator, released it free and open source. So it was originally for China. Versions have been made for five countries so far, uh, the United States, China, Mexico, Indonesia, and Poland. Uh, all, four of them, all but Poland, are now publicly released, and Poland will be um, hopefully soon. And uh, the interest in the model keeps on growing, and we now have concrete plans to build versions for California, that's going to be the first version for a, a U.S. state instead of a country, uh, Canada and India in early 2018. So about 
your the second question you asked was about what sort of assumptions have gone into the transportation sector in, of the model. Um, and the model takes a lot of input data in uh, in order to, to run. And um, in, in some sense, the, the assumptions are, are embodied in the input data, usually. Um, one of the biggest for the transport sector is the level of demand for transportation services. In the model, that's measured in units of cargo distance, which means passenger miles or passenger kilometers traveled for uh, passenger modes, or freight ton miles or freight ton kilometers transported for freight modes. Um, and we, in the BAU, or bus BAU stands for business as usual case, uh, we take that in from an external data source. In this case, the, for the United States, that's the U.S. Energy Information Administration's annual energy outlook. Um, we also take in other sorts of information that uh, could be called assumptions because they govern model behavior. Uh, a good example are the elasticities in the model. For example, the elasticity of demand for transportation services with respect to the cost of transport, so how much further people want to, to drive or to fly if it's cheaper to drive or to fly, um, or the same with freight. Uh, another example of an elasticity would be the change in price of a vehicle with respect to the uh, change in efficiency of that vehicle between the policy case and the BAU case. So um, there are a variety of those sorts of assumptions, and they're all thoroughly documented and disclosed in the model documentation. So it's so interesting, um, you know, I mean, there aren't that many, or I don't think there are any, you know, open source models um, like this out there that also can then be, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, reconfigured for an individual country or even, you know, a state's um, needs. I mean, what's been the reception out there since you put this out there, there publicly? Um, we've been happy with the response to the model. So, um, and, and the response has, has grown over time because it takes a little while for a new modeling tool to gain traction mm -hmm. and notice. Um, the first, um, the first user was, of course, the Chinese government because they were the ones who requested this work. And, um, they informed us that <laughs> their use of the tool helped factor into their um, decision-making in terms of what target they should be uh, committing to in Paris and what sort of policies to put in the 13th five-year plan to start getting there. So already that's a good result um, because uh, China is a very major emitter of uh, greenhouse gases and other pollution, and if it helps them find a way to reduce greenhouse gases, that almost by itself makes the project worthwhile. But um, it's also important to us to, um, to make this tool widely available and try to help as many people as possible with it. So um, the U.S. version is sort of the version we use for core development work on new features. Um, I don't think as many people have been using the U.S. national version, perhaps in part because the national political environment here isn't very amenable to environmental policy right now. <laughs> right. But I've been using, yeah, but I've been using it, for example, to make the article in Forbes, you notice. Yeah. So it is still helpful um, 
for bringing notice to the fact that there are policies that will save money while reducing emissions, and these would be really good policies to enact. Um, Mexico was interested, and that's why we ended up doing a version for Mexico, our third version, um, and then it sort of snowballs from there, and so that we had a partnership with World Resource Institute on that project. Mm-hmm. They really liked the tool. They wanted an Indonesia version. Um, the European Climate Foundation and COPA, a think tank partly owned by the Polish government, uh, wanted to build a version for Poland, which is very coal-heavy European state, uh, and so on. Um, so we're happy, but we're not done, and we want it to continue to grow and be useful for even more people. So um, I'm going to provide a link to to um, the energy policy simulator on um, my website as part of the podcast post, and I want to get to the uh, Forbes article. But one question I want to ask you before we get there is, um, did the model actually have some influence or connection to China's new energy vehicle policy, which was just announced a few a few weeks ago. Was that helpful to them in terms of, um, you know, deliberating, um, you know, on what direction they were going to go uh, on the policy? Um, so they uh, they don't uh, provide us with the specific detail in saying because of your simulator, we decided to enact or announce the following policy. Mm -hmm. I think there are political reasons they wouldn't want to do that. They wouldn't want to say that a tool made by a foreign firm, even an open source one full of their own data, uh, was definitive in any particular policy. Um, So um, we don't actually receive that type of feedback from them. We just receive a more generalized feedback that they used it to help inform their recommendations to top policymakers about what policies should be enacted to hit China's goals. So it's possible they could have looked at that in the transportation sector, but I don't have um, specifics on that Mm -hmm. for you. Sure. So I want to get to um, the findings in transport and the the Forbes article. So the article, and and also uh, an article in the, the Energy Collective as well, talking about the four policies. So can you talk about those four policies and the sort of the the article and the and the process by which um, you you came to those conclusions um, and and then we'll just go from there absolutely um, so my article uh, the one well, there were a couple in Forbes and this one is about how four policies can reduce US transport emissions by 45 percent oil use 23 percent and save 5300 lives per year by 2050. Um, And this is looking at four policies apart from electric vehicles, because I dealt with electric vehicles in a different uh, article on the same site uh, in in a couple weeks prior. Um, So the four policies are um, fuel economy standards um, for light-duty vehicles. Um, That's the strongest policy in terms of greenhouse gas abatement. Uh, There's also um, passenger and freight transportation demand management. So when I see transportation demand management, that refers to a collection of policies that help reduce um, on-road vehicle use. So for 
light-duty passenger vehicles, that would be things like zoning for higher density along public transit corridors so people have a more convenient way to use public transit, or zoning for mixed-use development so that people can live near to where they work and it gives them the option to walk or bike to work. Um, another, uh, another part of transportation demand management, or TDM, is properly funding public transit systems so that they are frequent and high-quality service. Um, there also can be measures like congestion pricing. Um, so that whole suite of policies, I'm counting as one policy, the TDM. Um, the, the third policy I'll mention is a fee bait. So this policy is a little less familiar than some others, but a fee bait is a, a fee that's levied on um, less efficient cars or other vehicles like light-duty trucks um, that is rebated to the buyers of more efficient vehicles at the same time. So it's like a couple tax and subsidy. So uh, it can be revenue neutral for the government, and it can provide a strong incentive for buyers to uh, choose the more efficient vehicles of a given kind. Uh, the fee bait is particularly helpful because vehicle buyers sometimes have a tendency to look a lot at the upfront price of a vehicle, but discount the or heavily discount the lifetime fuel savings or fuel costs from that vehicle. So even if an efficient vehicle um, would save money over the time period the person is likely to use the vehicle, they might not buy it if um, it costs a little more up front. And a fee bait helps um, even that out. Um, fuel economy standards for heavy-duty vehicles, particularly freight vehicles, meaning trucks, um, are also a strong policy. Um, and actually, uh, aircraft uh, are, are just about as strong uh, as fuel economy standards for heavy-duty vehicles. So the ones for aircraft have to be set in cooperation with international bodies, particularly the International Civil Aviation Organization. Mm -hmm. So um, were you surprised? I mean, I would have um, myself, if I, you know, I'm an analyst um, in, in this area, um, and if I had to pick some policies, and I've actually been put on the spot <laughs> uh, with clients and others, you know, if you had to pick some policies, uh, you know, you, you always say that a lot of transport policies um, have, have failed, and, um, and I do believe that's true, and I've written extensively about that, but I've also been asked, you know, about, um, okay, so which ones would you choose? So to me, like, the no-brainers are fuel economy standards for light and heavy duty, um, that would, you know, um, you know, slam dunk, so to speak. Um, I would have put um, low carbon fuel standard. Um, you know, that I had my doubts, um, and, um, and I've done analyses in the past that have, you know, doubted um, whether, you know, the, the requirements of the California low carbon fuel standard could be met because of the, you know, sheer availability of fuel options, but, you know, we have, you know, the things that I didn't count on at that time were, one, you know, corn ethanol became, um, you know, much more efficient and carbon intensity is reducing. 
um, or, or, you know, um, continuing to, to be reduced in, in those areas. You know, we have a ramp up of renewable natural gas. You know, we have more electric vehicles on the road than I might have contemplated, you know, five, six um, years ago when the standard first came out. So, um, you know, I really would put that um, at the top of the list. Um, and I probably would have put the combination of transportation demand um, because I think we are entering a time where um, local officials, um, you know, globally um, are needing to put into place policies. You know, they're expanding public transport, they're expanding walkability and, and um, the ability to cycle. Um, and, um, you know, they're really, um, you know, really engaged in the area of you know, reducing congestion, reducing air pollution, making cities livable, walkable, improving the quality of life for the residents. So I, I would have put that. But the fee bait, I'm kind of um, like, that one would not have <laughs> entered my mind. So my question with all that long preface is, um, were you surprised, you know, at the analysis and, you know, what policies came out of it? Um. I guess um, I'm somewhat somewhat surprised. I mean, one of the benefits of having an objective tool with all of this transparent data is you can run it and and see what comes out. And if it leads to a new insight that hey, there's this good policy I was overlooking because it isn't in the news very much or for whatever reason, then the, then the simulator is doing its job. Um, so. A, a fee data is sort of like that, where it's it's just not a policy that you tend to hear a lot about. But I, I understand why it's strong after um, after the simulator points it out to me. Um, it's both a tax and a subsidy rolled into one, and it uh, overcomes this. Um, it helps overcome this psychological barrier where people are so cost sensitive to the upfront cost of a vehicle, and much less so to the lifetime fuel savings of a vehicle. Um, at least uh, for um, consumers, regular people buying cars. So, so it sort of makes sense in in retrospect. Um, so, um, as far as the low carbon fuel standard you mentioned, um, that's also a policy we can model, um, and it is a strong policy uh, in our simulation, at least out through 2030 or so. Um, we. Um, saw, we saw a drop-off in effectiveness after that point because by that point we were seeing high levels of electric vehicle penetration, high enough to satisfy the low-carbon fuel standard settings we were choosing in our policy package. So to continue to be effective beyond 2030, um, in, assuming that the world does in fact follow a strong EV deployment trajectory or a given country, uh, follow a strong EV deployment trajectory, it may be necessary to implement sort of an accelerating low-carbon fuel standard or to ratchet it up um, significantly in those those out years. Um, so um, I, this what you're saying is, is dovetailing nicely into the next thing I want to ask you because I know you've done a lot of work um, in the electric vehicle space uh, as well and you've also written about it for Forbes which I will link to in the post um, for listeners and readers so how do what I want to ask you is how do um, electric vehicles interact um, with this analysis and the findings, and what's your view in general of how the EV market will will evolve in the next uh, ten to fifteen years? 
So EVs are um, a very important factor in how the transportation sector, at least in the United States, um, evolves um, in the next 10 to 15 years, and even more so, I think, uh, out to 2050, beyond that. Um, that's because they are um, they, they gain a lot in market share. So our simulation had a fairly aggressive um, or, or fairly bullish uh, prediction for EV deployment, showing that in a BAU case, it could be up to 65% of new sales by 2050. Um, in 10 to 15 years, much less. We were seeing uh, in about 10 years, it was in the 8% range. In 15 years, um, it was starting to pick up uh, more and could be, in theory, above the 20% range in terms of market share. Um, that would require uh, strong deployment of charging infrastructure. Um, and as I said, it's a bit of a bullish prediction, though actually less so than Bloomberg New Energy Finance's prediction. Um, and um, and this is something that drives decarbonization in the transportation sector, um, even in a BAU case. So in our modeling, the transport sector is the only sector in the U.S. economy that achieves emissions reduction through 2050 in the BAU case. The other sectors um, do require po policy, additional policy to get there. Um, we do think that I think and hope that policy will be in place so the BAU case isn't a isn't our best prediction of reality. Um, it's a projection uh, of what would happen given um, a lack of new policy. And um, EVs are a big part of that. The reason they are a big part of that is because they're attractive to consumers even without additional policies. They're very cheap to operate. Uh, today's EVs can go about 43 miles on $1 worth of fuel or electricity, and that may improve over time with more uh, efficiency gains. EVs um, are projected to have lower maintenance costs because they have fewer moving parts. Um, they have good performance characteristics, strong acceleration, uh, and the continuing declines in, in costs, especially cost of batteries, will help make them more and more attractive as time goes on. Um, we saw an S-curve shape uh, uptake, um, which is which means that for a while uptake grows slowly, but then it accelerates as they really overtake uh, gasoline cars in terms of, uh, of pricing and become more competitive. Um, so those are some of our views of the BAU case, but there are policies that can be used to accelerate uh, EV deployment. Um, like EV subsidies um, or or mandates, uh, as well as what I already mentioned, uh, ensuring there's strong deployment of EV charging infrastructure, which is sort of almost a necessary precondition. So I have to ask you, um, because this has happened in the in the interim between the time that we were first talking about doing this podcast and and to today, and that is this um, tax reform. Uh, policy um, proposal uh, floating around uh, Congress right now, a provision of which would eliminate the, um, the tax credit for electric vehicles. So, you know, if that happens, um, does that is does that fundamentally, I mean, obviously, you haven't done the uh, most likely haven't done the modeling on this, but um, do could you foresee a 
um, a tremendous impact or is it more like uh, what you're saying you know that uh, you know all the characteristics you talked about the performance that it's cheaper to operate that that these things will come about you know the market will grow anyway um, tax credit or no tax credit um, so, so the tax credit you mentioned is already integrated into our BAU case mm -hmm. because of course it is already part of law so um, so our projections, our strong projections uh, for EV deployment involve the uh, existence of that tax credit. Um, if it were eliminated, then we would we would indeed see lower EV slower and lower EV penetration than what I just described uh, because it, it's a way uh, it's a policy change that would make things worse than in the BAU case. Um, the tax credit is helpful. It is still helpful because right now. EVs are not yet at the point where they are as cheap as gasoline vehicles. And as I mentioned when we were talking about debate, mm -hmm. the upfront purchase price is very important to consumers. Um, so that, uh, that tax credit is currently um, doing a lot to drive EV sales. And, um, uh, and the EV sales, in turn, help drive down future EV costs because our model includes what's called an endogenous learning rate. That is, the cost of EVs, uh, the declines in those costs are linked to the cumulative level of EV deployment. So if you slow EV deployment today by um, eliminating that tax credit, then you'll slow the rate of cost declines, and then it pushes out the date at which EVs Managed to become on par with gasoline vehicles in terms of cost, and that pushes out uh, all the, uh, the the dates of all the, the milestones. So, um, I think it would be fair to say that even though EVs have all those advantages I mentioned, um, that we're still at the stage in their uh, development where that tax credit is important. It's doing its job. It's helping a new technology. Uh, gain a foothold and gain uh, enough traction to reach parity with an old established technology um, and eliminating those tax credits would be a big mistake. We will see what happens there. The auto industry seems to, to agree. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens with that tax reform proposal. I personally, <laughs> Congress hasn't had a wonderful track record of really accomplishing much. <laughs> uh, for many years, we might, uh, you know, we might argue, but certainly this year. So my, my view personally is that, um, you know, that's likely not going to happen, not going to happen, the elimination of the tax credit, and frankly, also the tax reform pr proposal uh, even even succeeding, but uh, stranger things could, could happen, and, and I could be wrong. So, um, won't be the first time, <laughs> uh, won't be the last time either. So, um, my last question for you is, what has been the reaction um, to this analysis, I mean, especially the, the article on the, the four policies that we've been talking about. That's my first question. And, and my second and truly last question is, do you see more states and cities, um, you know, moving in these four policy areas? For policy areas, I mean, obviously, fuel economy is a federal, or you know, just as you say in the case of aviation, sort of a, a supranational or, or international organization-related um, um, issue. Um, but you know, there's low carbon fuel standards, there's transportation demand management, um, and there's fee baits. So, do you see uh, states and cities getting more active in that area? 
Well, um, so, so first, on the question of what's the reaction to this analysis and to the energy policy simulator, um, um, I would say that the, uh, the reaction has been one of interest. We get people, um, in response to these pieces um, in Forbes and elsewhere, uh, people have contacted me and wanted to talk about it. Either some folks will uh, say, um, we like this analysis, but we disagree with this one thing you used. And then I can say, that's great. It's open source. You can easily change that one number and, re and run the scenario. Um, that's the advantage of having an open source tool. Um, others will say they want to explore using the tool for their own analysis purposes, and that's great, too, and we encourage that. Um, or, um, and other people just read the article and get an understanding that there are policies out there that will help decarbonize the transport sector and save money and save lives, and that's good for people to know. Um, one concrete example. Um, so we got, uh, I was contacted by Transport Canada. That's uh, Canada's equivalent to the Department of Transportation um, in response to these articles. Um, and, um, and they wanted to become involved in the project we have to build a Canada version, which we're doing with an NGO in Canada. So that's great. And it's an example of how putting out your results there in articles drives further interest and can help us reach um, policymakers, um, that the exact sorts of folks we want to reach around the world. Um, the second question was um, if we see states and cities moving in these four policy areas, um, keeping in mind, as you mentioned, that fuel economy standards are, are federal for on-road vehicles, um, international for aviation shipping. Um, so let's see. California is clearly moving ahead with the fuel economy standard. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm at the low carbon fuel standard. Um, and they, um, they're sort of the U.S. leader on that policy. Um, the, uh, while the U.S. isn't moving ahead on fuel economy standards in general, um, and might or might not be seeking to roll back the uh, CAFE standard um, improvements under the prior administration. Um, fuel economy standards are something that is being looked at and ratcheted up in a variety of countries around the world. Um, debates, I am not um, off the top of my head um, thinking of a, of a state or city that is pursuing debates, though there might be some examples. Um, and transportation demand management is something that um, I think there's an increasing recognition that it has um, overall benefits, not just in terms of emissions abatement, but also in terms of livability. So it helps deal with traffic jams and mobility problems and, and just makes a city um, more pleasant to live in when you design it around people instead of around cars. So um, some cities uh, that are traditionally very um, car-oriented, uh, like Los Angeles, have been putting in uh, metro systems. And uh, another promising method of improving public transit is bus rapid transit. Um, bus systems that have um, 
specific stops like uh, like a metro system. Ideally, they have a separated right-of-way, so they don't have to contend with normal traffic, and they ideally have um, uh, payment and fare gating at the stations so that there isn't delays in lo- during the loading of the bus. Um, it's a way to get service to an approach uh, metro-level quality at one-tenth the price. Um, so that's something that I know is is being deployed in cities around the U.S. So those are some uh, thoughts on those four policies and, and uptake. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. And I think, um, you know, just to, as we get ready to conclude, I mean, I think cities, you know, I've been been studying this from my side, um, um, looking at potential impacts to the fuels market, and cities really are um, doing a lot on uh, transportation demand uh, management. I mean, everything from there's, there's been a lot of focus on transit-oriented um, development. You know, um, you know, bus rapid transit, like you've been saying, you know, adding bike lanes, adding you know, walking uh, paths, um, widening sidewalks um, the big one has been uh, changing uh, building codes to uh, to limit um, parking and so it's um, you know that really is a- along with what's actually you know that's really uh, you know really fuels and vehicles um, related you know there's sort of this whole other category of actions that that cities are taking to alleviate um, congestion and I, I think the parking restriction you know the building code slash parking restriction changes um, you know is is a big one I mean because you know cities are recognizing more and more they just you know the, the car fleet is growing um, people really love their cars <laughs> you know and uh, you know they just can't handle the the volume um, of cars anymore so the the transportation demand management policies are, um, you know, the way that you talk about them collectively, you know, they really are, um, you know, could be really, again, collectively, really, really impactful. They, they really can be. They are so important. They save money because it's cheaper to use these other modes like public transit or, of course, walking than it is to own and operate your own car. They reduce congestion, and um, if you visited some of these traffic-clogged cities, um, like for Indonesia, I went to Jakarta and was working there, and the traffic is just terrible. It takes ages just to cross the city or or to go a short distance. It's hard even to cross the street as a pedestrian on some streets. Um, It makes you realize how important this stuff is um, for for the future of mobility in the United States, and it's something that should not be overlooked in in the focus on on vehicles and fuels. All right. We'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Jeff so much for being with us on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you, and I hope we can stay in touch um, as you continue to, uh, to work in this area. So thank you. I'd love. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, 
So please do us a favor before you go. Uh, will you uh, head over to iTunes and rate this podcast? This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping this show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on fuels and vehicles and transport issues, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. Okay, Jeff, uh, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, so the next step is um, it will be um, 